Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a great and awesome God. You know what? I should say that different. Lord, you are the great and awesome God. Lord, there is no one like you. There is nothing higher than you. There is nothing greater than you. Um, Lord, and today, I just want to tell you that I believe that. Um, Lord, I believe that you are awesome. Uh, Lord, today, uh, as we come together around your word, uh, I pray for your grace. Uh, Lord, I pray for your help. Uh, Father, both for me as I present your word, but also for my brothers and sisters here today who hear your word, and for those who maybe haven't been brought into the family who hear your word proclaimed, Lord, I pray that you would make your word effective today as only you can. Um, Lord, I'm... I'm reminded that I am nothing but dust. But you love me anyway. Um, So, Lord, today, uh, I pray for your grace as we open your word. I pray that you would move us, that you would direct us, that you would drive us to mission. um, As your word shows us, you do. So, Lord, help us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today... um, Today is our last week in this Power and Purpose series. Um, I, I have... I have enjoyed it. I don't know that I've ever had a series, though, that I've just been like, I've hated this series. So maybe I say that too often, but I really do. I enjoy these series whenever we can look at these big themes in God's Word, like like what is God's what is God's purpose in the world? What is he purposing to do? And how is he showing his power in creation? I've really enjoyed it, but we have this week left. And next week, we're going to start to see the opposition that comes up around Jesus. And it's kind of brought to the forefront as, as the opposition really grows against Jesus and his message. Uh, but one more time, I want to see Jesus' power and his purpose on display. Because as we've gone through this series, we've seen Jesus has healed the sick. He's raised the dead. He's shown his authority over creation as he he rebukes a storm. Um, we've seen him cast out demons. We've even seen him forgive sins. We've seen Jesus demonstrating his power over things, we've, and we've seen his purpose. We've seen that his purpose is to send us out into the world to heal the sick, to bring the lost to himself so that they might have eternal life. We've seen this purpose again and again. And last week, specifically, we saw that purpose kind of on display as Jesus prepared to send out the twelve. Right? We saw him bring his disciples to himself, and we, we saw that how, how our work for the nations has to flow from God's compassion for the nations. Does that sound familiar? I hope so. If you all were here last week, I hope that sounds familiar, because I think I said it about a dozen times. Our work for the nations has to flow from God's compassion for the nations. And then we saw how we have to pray. If we're not praying for the nations, we've already lost the battle. If we're not going to the God who has unlimited resources, we have already lost the battle. We have to pray. It's an indispensable part of reaching the nations. And then, but, but this is one of my favorite parts. Then we saw how, how prayer, praying for the nations, doesn't always change the nations. Sometimes that changes us to go to the nations. So we saw all that take place. But, okay, Let's just say we've prayed for the nations. We believe God has sent us to share the gospel. We believe we belong to the family. Okay, so how do we do that? See, that's the next step. We know, okay, we've been sent to the nations, but now what? Like, do we just just go crazy and just try whatever we want? Well, <laughs> you could try it, I guess. <laughs> doing something is better than doing nothing. I'll say that. But, but here, we, we see that this text actually tells us how to go to the nations. Now, I want to be careful, though, as I say that. 
I want to be very careful as I say that. Because as you open this text and you start, as, as we read this, you're going to see that Jesus is telling these 12 how to go. He's telling them what to do, what to expect as they go. He's telling them how. But we have to be very careful because if we just open this text and we read it straight out and we try to apply it directly to our lives without understanding the principles behind it, we will misapply this text. Uh, For example, I'm just going to give you the low-hanging fruit here. Jesus here tells these 12 not to go to the Gentiles. He tells them to go to just Jewish people. Now, if that is the end of the story, if that is all there is and this is just a Jewish thing... Y'all, I don't have much hope because I'm, I'm not Jewish. So the good news is that that changes. So then is this wrong? How do we apply this text? What does this text teach us? Well, what we have to do is we have to look for the bigger principles behind the text. What is Jesus teaching his apostles? What is he teaching his followers? And how then do we respond and like it? How do we go? So hopefully we can see both of those things that this is applied, this is intended for a specific people in a specific place at a specific time, but still find the principles to apply to our lives today. So that's my goal today. My goal is to see these principles that we can apply to our commission to go and make disciples of the nations. Because that's what we've been commissioned to do, right? To go and make disciples of the nations. That's our task. So how do we do that? Well, today we're going to take a large chunk of the text. Um, We're going to see how Jesus commissions his disciples. So, y'all, we're going to read for about the next 20 minutes, but I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we do. So would you all stand with me? And just so you know, 20 20 minutes. I'm not a strong reader, so that may not be sarcastic. Matthew chapter 10, if you want to follow along, we'll begin in verse 5. Matthew 10, beginning in verse 5, and it says, Jesus sent out these 12 after giving them instructions. Don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles, and don't enter any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you received, freely give. Don't acquire gold, silver, or copper for your money belts. Don't take a traveling bag for the road for, or, or an extra shirt, sandals, or staff, for the worker is worthy of his food. When you enter any town or village, find out who is worthy and stay there until you leave. Greet a household when you enter it. And if the household is worthy, let your peace be on it. But if it is unworthy, let your peace return to you. If anyone does not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Look, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. Beware of them, because they will hand you over to local courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, don't worry about what you, what you are to speak. For you will be given what to say at that hour. Because it isn't you speaking, but the spirit of your father is speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death and father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to another. For truly I tell you, you will not have gone through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master. It is, it, it is enough for a disciple to become like his teacher and a slave like his master. 
If they called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? Therefore, don't be afraid of them, since there is nothing covered that won't be uncovered, and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What you hear in a whisper, proclaim on the housetops. Don't fear those who kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. But even the hairs of your head have all been counted. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. The one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone who finds his life will lose it. And anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. The one who welcomes you welcomes me. And the one who welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. Anyone who welcomes a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who welcomes a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is a disciple, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. Thank God for his word. You may be seated. Oh, that wasn't 20 minutes. I don't even know if we made it a full five. Four. You t- Did you really time that? Oh, goodness. I should have run to hide. That's what should have happened. Okay. Okay, so that's a lot. That is a lot. But as we go, I think we can pull some principles from this text that inform us as to how we go. Okay, and that's what I want us to look at, these five principles. First thing first, our mission requires an overflow of Christ's love. Now, this kind of goes hand in hand with what we looked at last week, how our mission to the nations has to flow from God's compassion for the nations. Again, if we're looking for our love to be sufficient as we go, we're going to fail. Our love will not be sufficient. We have to go as a requirement. Uh, as a requirement, we have to go out of an overflow of Christ's love. And here is where we get to some of this contextually specific instruction, right? Uh, again, he's they're told, flat out told, don't go to the Samaritans, don't go to the Gentiles, go to the lost sheep of Israel. He says, go to these people. Don't go to the Gentiles. And as they go, they're specifically told to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cleanse lepers, to drive out demons. And again, we see that this is specifically to these people, okay? Specifically to these people. Now, one of the principles that we can take is one that we talked about last week. We care for people's needs, physical needs, absolutely. Church, if we're not caring for people's physical needs, we have, again, we've already lost Sometimes we think, hey, we need to take the gospel to these people. Well, we have to proclaim the gospel to these people. What they really need is Jesus. And you're right, that is what they need. But a lot of people can't hear you because they're busy thinking about the thirst that they have because they don't have any clean water. Y'all, we need to care for people's physical needs. And they're told to go care for real physical needs as they go to proclaim this good news. 
But see, I think one of the biggest things that we can take away from this first section here, these first few verses here, is actually found at the end of verse 8. And I think this is a principle that we can certainly all apply. At the end of verse 8, he says, Freely you received, freely give. Freely you received, freely give. In other words, the only reason that you have anything to give is because you've already received it. See, we don't have anything good on our own that we need to take to people. What we need is to take what we've been given from God. We share the good news because we know how good the news is. Look, a lot of times we think we care for people, but we really miss the point. We're like, well, we're doing good things, but we're not meeting people's biggest need. The reason we go to people is because we know how helpless we were on our own. I I know that I I tend to be hard on myself, and I'm going to do it again um, because this is true. I have looked at people who have been in really bad circumstances, and I've looked at them very cold and thought, well, you got yourself into that mess. I don't think I'm alone, though. I think, well, you did it to yourself. Sorry. Figure it out. The truth is, if God had had that attitude with me, I would be condemned to hell because I got myself into that mess. I chose to rebel against God. But he loved me so much that he pursued me. He came after me. And he loved me and he forgave me. Church, our work, our work has got to flow from this abundance. We receive freely, not because we earned it, not because we were good enough, but because Christ loved us. He gave it to us freely. So whenever we look at other people and we say, well, should we share the gospel? Well, they're not really good people. Well, neither were you. We freely give because we have freely received See, we encounter God. As Christians, what we say is we've been forgiven of our sin. We have encountered God. And because we've encountered God, that should result in an overflow of God's grace. Because we have changed hearts and changed lives. And that overflow of grace should drive us to share the good news with others. So he says, freely you've received, freely give. And then we get some more contextually specific instructions, all flowing from the principle that we've learned, right? So he goes on to say, don't acquire money. He says, don't acquire gold, silver, copper for your money belt. And uh, this text has been abused and been used to say, hey, you should never pay a preacher. And some of you are saying, amen. Some of you are probably right, man. Okay. So never pay a missionary. Never pay someone to share the gospel. Some people have taken this text to mean that. There's a problem with that, though. There's a problem with that. Because if you look at other places in Scripture, like 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14, it says, The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. Okay, so how do we reconcile this? If you're not supposed to earn a living by sharing the gospel, well, then why does he say that those who share the gospel should earn a living by the gospel? Well, How does that work together? Well, again, what we have to see here is the principle behind what Jesus is saying. What is he teaching his followers? I think what he's teaching here is that a person needs to go. They need to be willing to do something for free. You need to be willing to go even if if you don't make a dime off of it. Now, as a church, we should be willing to send others out. We should be willing to support those who share the gospel. We should certainly be willing to share, share with those, to support them. One way that I've looked at this is if we have a ministry position in a church, and this is just my opinion, this isn't, just so you all know, this is how I've seen this text applied. This isn't out of the Bible, okay? This is just my opinion on what this is teaching. If somebody isn't willing to serve in a position for free, they should never be paid to do it. I I just think that's true. Um, 
And y'all, I've had to apply that in my own life before. Um, so before you say, Jared, that's really easy for you to say you're a paid Christian. Ha! Yeah, I know. I get it. I feel the awkwardness in even saying that. But church, I've done it for free. I've served in positions. I've preached for free. I've worked with youth. I've done all of those things. And I'm very grateful for the opportunity to do it. And I'm even more grateful for a church who's willing to support me because I've done it. Um, but we see missionaries and we say, well, should we support them? If they're taking the gospel, you better believe we should support them. We should do everything we can to see the gospel go forward. Because I think what we see is an indicator of a person's heart. If they're doing it just so that they can acquire more gold, silver, or copper, or maybe dollar bills or bigger checks, if that's the only reason they're sharing the gospel, they've already missed the point. The purpose isn't to make a living. The purpose is to see God's kingdom advance. It's not from an abundance of God's grace. It's for the love of money. Which do, we, which do we want more? God's kingdom to come or my bank account to grow? I think that's the question we need to ask. And then there's this really harsh judgment here at the end. He says, for those, it'll be worse than, worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Worse than if they were Sodom and Gomorrah. See, in Abraham's day, why, why is it worse? Why is it worse there? Okay. Um, I think we need to ask that question. Why is it actually worse for those who have rejected these disciples? Why is it worse for them than it is on Sodom and Gomorrah? Y'all, I'm struggling to talk today. Why is it worse for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it is for these people who have rejected these disciples? Why? Well, I think the reason is in Abraham's day, they didn't have the privilege of Jesus. They could look forward to Jesus. They could look forward to the coming Messiah. But they didn't have Jesus in the flesh. These people in Abraham's day in Sodom and Gomorrah, if they had any hope, it was to look forward by faith to this coming Messiah. These people... These people here in Jesus' time, they had the Old Testament text which pointed them forward. They had Jesus and the signs and wonders he did and his testimony. So these apostles went out and they had opportunity to receive the good news that these apostles were sharing. Church, we have an even greater advantage. We have God's spirit who's come to us. We have God's word, the Old and New Testament. We have no excuse. So why is it worse for those who reject these disciples and for Sodom and Gomorrah, Gomorrah was because they had greater opportunity and they spurned it. The point I think that we need to see here, the point I think we need to see here in these first, first 15 or first 10 verses or so of today's text is that our strategy, our order, uh, there is certainly some of that in these apostles going. So should we have strategy? Should we have order in our sending and our going? Yeah, I think we should. Absolutely, I think we should. Further, I think we see that we need to care for physical needs and spiritual needs. But more important than either one of those things is I think we need to see, I think we need to see here in today's text that our mission requires an overflow of Christ's love. If we don't have an overflow of Christ's love, then what are we doing? Are we, a social, act, are we social activists now or are we the church? We have to be going out of an abundance of God's love in us and take it to those around us. Second, Second principle we see here is that our mission requires steadfast endurance. It requires steadfast endurance. See, in verse 16, there's this shift in the text from an exclusively present tense context where he's saying, here's how we go. When you go here directly, when this happens, here's how you do it. Now we're going to go to an all future. In other words, all mission, including our time. This is how we go. Um, because as we look at this text, it, he starts talking about persecution, right? He starts talking about how it's going to become difficult to share the gospel. It's going to, they're going to face opposition. Um, most scholars will agree that in this time, there's no real evidence of widespread persecution against Jesus' followers. So 
That's why I say this is future tense. This is Jesus looking forward to whenever things become increasingly difficult. And what he says is, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. Now, there's this funny mixed metaphor, or I know part of it's a simile. Okay, for English nerds, I know it starts a simile, but then it's metaphor, right? Okay. So there's this, this mix here. He says, you're sheep. You're sheep, right? Sending you out like sheep among wolves. Sheep have no natural defenses. They're pretty much helpless. I've said before, sheep aren't very smart. They just really aren't. And they're kind of nasty animals. They really are. So if you all raise sheep and you love sheep, I'm sorry, I'm insulting them, but they're just gross. Um, so no natural defenses. While wolves, on the other hand, are natural predators, right? So here they come for the sheep, which is why Jesus tells them that they have to be as shrewd as serpents. Now, if, as we hear this, we, we hear, okay, so they've got to be shrewd as serpents. Like, that seems like an odd thing, right? Isn't the serpent an evil thing all throughout the Bible? Well, yes, but we also see that it's a symbol of wisdom. A symbol of craftiness, maybe, is a better way to say that. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, back in the Garden of Eden, where the, the serpent is first introduced to us here, it says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He's the most cunning. And now Jesus is sending them out, and he says, be shrewd as serpents. They're the most cunning creature out there. They know when danger is coming. They know when to fight. They know when to run away. They know what to do. And sometimes they can be sneaky. So be as cunning, as shrewd as serpents. But at the same time, we don't want to just be serpents, because, you know, you ever heard of a snake in the grass? We don't just want to be the snakes out in the grass. We want to be better than that. He goes on and says, be shrewd as serpents, but as innocent as doves. And you all know, doves have been symbols of peace, of innocence, all throughout, all throughout Scripture, all throughout. Um, I mean, there's a couple of different places. You can think about Noah as he sends doves out and they bring back the olive leaf, right? So you can think of that showing that God's wrath has been lifted, that the, there's peace between man and God now. Or you can think about Jesus at his baptism. The Spirit descends on Jesus in the form of a dove, Right? So we see this emblem of peace here. And now Jesus says, be as, as shrewd as the serpent on the one hand, this cunning creature over here, but be as innocent as this symbol of peace. We don't want one or the other. We want to be both. And this combination brings us to being wise, knowing when to escape danger and when to advance, and being innocent in our dealings while bringing peace to others. Uh, Warren Wearsby, I think, phrased this better than I could. He said, we need to be tough-minded and tender-hearted. Tough-minded and tender-hearted as we see the gospel advance. And Jesus warns them. He tells them why. He says there's going to be religious persecution, right? He says you're going to be flogged in the synagogues. Problem is, it's not just going to be religious persecution. There's also going to be governmental persecution. He says you're going to be brought before governors and kings. But we endure this trial by his strength, trusting it is for his purpose. Because notice, he says that you're going to be brought before Kings, and what is it? Well, hang on, let me find this here, because I didn't put it in my notes, but I think it's worth saying. You brought, be brought before governors and kings. Verse 18, if you're looking for this. You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the Gentiles. They're brought before governors and kings for a purpose. This persecution is to see the gospel advance so that we can bear witness to the world. There's still purpose in it. So we trust as we are, that God will give us the words to say. Now again, verses 19 and 20, they've been abused as a reason not to study God's word. Like, I don't need to prepare. God's going to give me the words to say whenever things are hard. It's okay. 
Well, yeah, he will give you the words to say. That's true, but it's also terrible reasoning. See, the Bible is often the means that God gives us for that very purpose, right? And the Spirit brings those words back to our minds so that we can use God's word whenever we are faced with this opposition. And as Warren Wearsby again points out, he says, these verses describe an emergency situation. They are not God's regular pattern for ministry today. So yes, we rely on the Spirit. Absolutely we rely on the Spirit, but we also prepare and we are wise. But he says, even family, not just government, not just churches, not just the synagogues, these aren't the only places that are going to bring these struggles. He says there's also going to be family problems. He says, brother will betray brother, father's going to turn on his child, children are going to turn on their parents, and these are even going to happen to the point of death. Y'all, we don't see that a lot of times in our context. But there are people around the globe, brothers and sisters around the globe, who face this struggle. Like today, there are people who say, if, if they are to come to their father and say, I've accepted Jesus and he is my only hope, they'll be put to death. You know, we don't realize that sometimes, but this is, this is real struggle, real persecution. This is difficult. See, really... If we believe what God's word says, and we believe that we're promised that when we follow Jesus, we're going to face opposition. But further than that, he says you're going to be hated by the world. Um, verse 22, though, verse 22, though, is where the help comes in. He says, the one who endures to the end, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Not might be saved or could be saved. The one who endures will be saved. Um, that's why I say oftentimes it's not enough to say a prayer to be saved. It's bigger. Salvation's bigger than just saying a prayer. It's bigger than joining a church. It's bigger than being a good person. Being a Christian is a lot more than that. The Christian faith is again and again about laying down your life. Laying down your life. Not just part of it, but literally all of it. Jesus isn't saying some light, good-humored words, mixing in jokes. He says, you're going to be betrayed to death. Are you willing to follow Jesus even in the face of that kind of opposition? And why wouldn't we be rejected, right? We shouldn't be surprised when that happens, should we? Of course not. Jesus was rejected. Are we above our master? No, at best we can hope to be like our master, Jesus says. Rejected like he was. And if we're not facing difficulty, then I have to ask a very real question. If we're not facing opposition, here's a very serious and very difficult question. Why? Why do we not face opposition? At times I've wondered this. Like, why is it so easy to be a Christian right here where we are when Jesus tells us we're going to be hated by the world? Um, And I think it's sometimes because our faith, the Christian faith, we've watered it down so that it looks like the world instead of being true Christian faith. Um, we think it's about doing these simple things when really the Christian faith is about laying down your life and making it all-consuming, letting it be all-consuming. And the church, we better believe that if we're going to be faithful in this mission, it's going to require endurance. It's not going to be easy. There are times it's going to be a real struggle, but I can also promise you that salvation comes through this endurance. So our mission requires an overflow of Christ's love and steadfast endurance. And our mission requires rejection of fear. Requires a rejection of fear. Verse 26, he says, Therefore, since you're going to face this kind of opposition, that we're going to start seeing more and more next week, 
Um, since we're going to face this opposition, everything, uh, I'm sorry, he says, don't be afraid of them. He says, don't be afraid of them. Even, don't even be afraid of those who are going to put you to death because of your faith. He says, don't be afraid of them. That's who he's talking about. Because he says everything will one day be uncovered. So our job is to take God's word and magnify it and to make much of Jesus. That's our task. It's to make much of Jesus. Just a few weeks ago, we looked at how we magnify Christ. And that's what he's telling his disciples to do, right? He says, make much of me and my word. Make much of it. Go and shout it from the rooftops. We should be making much of Christ. But we shouldn't. But shouldn't we be afraid? Isn't there a healthy fear? Y'all ever thought about that before? You ever thought of a healthy fear? Shouldn't we have a little bit of healthy fear? Like, we think about kids, they don't know to touch the stove, so you smack their hand, teach them a healthy fear of the stove. Y'all ever thought about that before? I'm not saying I hit my kids, don't, don't misunderstand. Y'all awake? Yeah, I know, this isn't the most upbeat sermon in the world. It's okay, I love y'all. Shouldn't we have a healthy fear? Shouldn't we be afraid a little bit at least? According to what Jesus says here, the answer is no. The answer is no, we shouldn't fear. He says, don't fear those who, can, who kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's verse 28, in case you were wondering. Jesus is saying here, he says, you can't fear both God and man. You can't fear both. It's one or the other. And if we don't fear God, then we have no wisdom. We don't even know how this whole thing starts, right? That's Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Look, if we don't fear God, then we don't have wisdom. And if we fear man, we can't fear God. You can't have both. It's one or the other. And he says, why would you fear man? All they, the worst thing they can do is kill you, right? <laughs> Y'all see how that sounds a little off? But see, he says, don't fear man. The worst they can do is kill your body. Instead, fear God. Fear God who can kill both body and soul in hell. Which one are you more afraid of? Man or God? Because that's where wisdom starts. But he doesn't just say, don't fear, right? It's really easy to say, don't fear. He gives reasons why we shouldn't fear. Right, as a matter of fact, he gives three reasons here. He says the worst person can do is kill your body, right? I mean, and, you know, as Paul writes, he says to live is Christ, to die is gain. So if we believe the Christian faith and we believe that to die, we get to be perfectly united with Christ. So that's gain, right? So worst a person can do is kill you, so why would you be afraid of them? Further, he says, second, God cares for, um, for something as meaningless as sparrows, Right? cares for something as meaningless as sparrows. He says, aren't two sparrows bought and sold for a penny? Like, they're worth nothing. Virtually nothing. Just a couple birds. All right, y'all ever seen all the blackbirds? You, get, you live in northwest Missouri. Those things just litter the highway, especially during harvest time, because our farmers can't keep the grain in their trucks. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, that was a joke, y'all. Um, so, you see the blackbirds just littering the sides of the highways all over out in the fields. You see them everywhere. So think about these, these stinking birds. Jesus just said God cares for all of them. And they're worth virtually nothing. Like they're worth so little. How much more does he care for you? You, who's been created in God's image. How much more does he care for you? So why shouldn't you fear you have a God who knows you and cares for you more than some birds. Like, he knows all of them. How much more does he know you? 
He says, even the hairs on your head have been counted. So many jokes. I'm going to let them all go. What I thought was funny is I see several bald people in the room just smiling real big, and the rest of y'all don't get it. Um, Even the hairs on your head have been counted. Look, that's the kind of tremendous care God has for you. He cares for you that much that even the hairs, every single hair on your head is counted. He knows how many there are. If he knows you that well, how much does he care for you? Why shouldn't you be afraid? God cares for you. The God who created all things, who sustains all things, he cares for you that much. D.A. Carson says it this way. He says, God's sovereignty over the tiniest detail should give us confidence that he also superintends the larger matters. Why should we not be afraid? We have a God who cares for the tiniest detail, so you better believe he cares for the, tiny, or the larger matters also. The point is, our mission requires us to reject all fears except for the fear of the Lord. So our mission requires an overflow of Christ's love, steadfast endurance, rejection of fear. Fourth, our mission requires identification with Christ. Now we see this again and again and again. We need to be identified with Christ. So we'll get to how this is different this time. Verses 32 and 33, though, it says, Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Look, I don't want to overcomplicate this. And as I was writing this, I sat there and thought, how do I explain this? And then I realized, I don't need to explain this. That's pretty self-explanatory. You acknowledge Christ before others, he'll acknowledge you before others. You deny him, he denies you. That's not complicated. You all get that, right? Okay, good. So we need to recognize Christ as Lord, both verbally, through our actions, and so on. And he'll recognize us before the Father. But this does something a little bit more. It also shows the exclusivity of, of the Christian faith. Like, exclusively Salvation is found in Jesus. Exclusively in Jesus. Right? This shows us that it's only acknowledging Christ. That's the only way. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to, the, given to people by which we must be saved. Or a verse I got to read just yesterday, John chapter 11, verse 25, it says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Jesus is saying, I'm it. I'm the only way. You identify with me. You recognize me as Lord. I'll recognize you. You don't. I'm not going to recognize you either. So why identify with Christ? Because that's where life is found. And he goes on to show the division loyalty to him will bring. Because if we, if we are loyal to him, if we are identified with Christ, it will bring division. It says there are families that are going to be torn apart because of the gospel. And Jesus gets to the point then in verse 37. He says, the one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And here's what Jesus is saying. Um, And I'm very glad that this works out this way. Um, My family's here today. At least a good chunk of my family is here today. My mom and dad are here. But before I am the son of Ron and Tracy, I am a follower of Jesus. I love my parents. But before I'm a son son of Ron and Tracy, I am a follower of Jesus. Um, My brother's here. Before I'm a brother of Jacob, I am a follower of Jesus. Jacob, I love you. But if it comes down to following Jesus or being your brother, I'm going to follow Jesus. Did you say about time? Huh? Uh, never mind. 
Now, here's the one that might really get you. Because what Jesus says here is more than son or daughter. Before I'm the husband to Stephanie or the father to Molly, Campbell, Enoch, and Micah, I am a follower of Jesus. Y'all know how deeply I love my kids. I talk about my kids enough. You should know how much I care for my kids. I would do anything for my kids. What Jesus is saying here is, do you love me more? Y'all, the Christian faith isn't some halfway, just kind of feel-good faith. The Christian faith is all-in, all-consuming, putting Jesus above all else. Um, Excuse me. What God is saying here is that being second is not an option. Putting Jesus second is not an option. He is first or he is nothing. That's what he says. Do you love him more? Jesus wants us to be completely identified with him above all other identifications. Are you with Jesus above all else? That's why he tells them. That's why he tells them to take up their cross and follow him. And if they don't, then they're not worthy of him. See, if we're not willing to follow Jesus, even at the cost of our very lives, he says, even at the cost of saying, okay, Jared is not as important as Jesus. That's that's hard for me, y'all. We naturally protect ourselves. Jared is not as important as Jesus is. And he says, if you're not willing to take up your cross and die, then you're not worthy of following Jesus. Y'all, this is high stake stuff. This is a big deal. What Jesus is calling for is a radical kind of devotion to him and a complete identification with him. See, one problem I believe that we have in the church is that we've replaced complete identification with Jesus with a whole hodgepodge of other things, right? We devote ourselves fully to our families and pretend that that's following Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. I want you to be devoted to your families. I hope you don't hear me say just abandon your families because that's the last thing I want you to do. That is not what I'm saying. But see, here's the problem. Even many non-believers are devoted to their families. Why are we different? I mean, are we really following him? We devote ourselves to great things like being good employees, and we pretend that that's what it means. That's the extent of following Christ. I'm really good at my job. I work hard whenever I get there. You know what? Even some non-believers do that. How are we different? What's special about us? And the answer needs to be this. Everything we do is devoted to God's glorification, to making much of who Jesus is, rather than our own personal advancement. Look, I've said this before. My, my job as a parent is not just that my parents have... My, my, my parents. I hope my parents have fun too. Yeah, I just talked about them, so I'll talk about them again. My job is not for my kids to be happy and have fun all the time. My job is for my kids to be saved, and then for them to work for the glorification of God also. The Bible talks about kids like arrows that are shot out into the world. My job is to make sure I sharpen those arrows and then launch them as projectiles into the world to make much of Christ. That is my job as a father. My job as a brother is to make, lift up my brothers. My job as a son is to lift up my parents so that they might make much of Christ. That's our job, to make much of Christ in everything we do. Our job is to make a good living and keep from stirring the pot. It's to point people to Jesus. That's our task. So let's stop avoiding the real purpose and start shouting from the rooftops that we belong to a good God. So our mission requires an overflow of Christ's love, steadfast endurance, rejection of fear, identification with Christ, 
and I'm going to run out of time, but I'm going to keep going anyway. Our mission requires royal representation, and I'll explain what I mean with that royal rep- representation. Um, first of all, let's rewind all the way back to verse 5 here. Um, if you go all the way back to verse 5 here of chapter 10, it says that these were sent out. And we talked about this word a little bit last week because this is the first time Matthew calls these people apostles, which means ones who are sent out. They are sent out ones. Um, which doesn't sound like much, okay? So they were sent out. We get that. But what this became synonymous with was being royal representatives. In Greek culture, one who was sent out from the king was his official ambassador. It was one who was going out on his behalf. So everything he said carried the weight of the king. See, these disciples are sent out, or they are going, carrying the message of their king, representing their master. And Jesus says, if they welcome you, they welcome me. You carry my authority with you. And if they welcome Jesus, then the one who sent him is also welcomed. And who sent Jesus? Well, it was the Father. You want to welcome God, welcome the one who sent him. See, as we go, we can know that those who reject our message aren't really rejecting us, but they're rejecting the king who sent us. It's not even our message. It's God's message that we're carrying. And that does several things. First, it should help us to remove that fear because, well, it's not our message that they're trying to hear anyway. It's God's message that we're trying to get across. So even rejection isn't really our rejection. It's rejection of God. So hopefully that removes some fear. Second, it should place a burden in our hearts because we have the message from the good king and only place that they can find salvation. We're carrying that message forward. That should should be some encouragement to you. They can have salvation as we take that to them. And finally, I hope this is an encouragement because that means we go with power. The church should not be weak, should not be hesitant. The church goes with power. Look, Y'all listen close. You have power. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have power. There's a song by Jeremy Camp called Same Power. Like literally the same power that rose Jesus from the grave is the power that you carry in you. Like as you go, why in the world would we be scared when we have the power of the one who raises a dead man? Y'all, we go with that power in us. Not because of anything, not because we're special, but because God loved us. So we get to take that power with us. See, when we love people, whenever we love the nations, whenever we go to the nations, we go to them and give them a chance to receive a good reward, right? He goes through and he talks about the one who receives a prophet receives a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person receives a righteous person's reward. Even somebody who gives a cup of cold water, they receive a reward. He goes through all these rewards. And whenever we go to people with the good news, we give them an opportunity to receive that reward. Why? Why do we go? Why do we want them to receive a reward, even if they're not good? Because God's love compels us to do so. And as we go, we go as royal ambassadors. Every time I think of this royal representation, I think of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, where Paul writes, he says, Therefore, we are ambassadors. We are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Look, our mission requires royal representation because when we go, we are not going in our own strength or as ourselves trying to get some social program done. We are going as royal ambassadors of King Jesus taking the good news of the gospel to them. So that's what our mission requires. Those are the principles we can apply. So what? 
Well, the question I've had to ask myself again and again and again lately is how can we leverage our lives for the sake of the mission God has entrusted to us? If we've been commissioned to go and make, make disciples of all nations, if that's what we've been commissioned to do, what are we doing? We are his ambassadors. We are his ambassadors. So let's think through how we can attempt, how we can attempt doing things for God. Big things. Look, see, here's the thing. I think sometimes we think too small. I think, no, let me say that differently. I think we almost always think too small. Um, we think, well, we can do this little thing. And those little things may be big things. Don't misunderstand. I'm not saying don't do the little things. What I'm saying is sometimes we think way too small. And we think, well, we can't do that because of X, Y, and Z. <laughs> I think it's funny whenever people in the Bible think, well, God can't do that. I just talked to, I've been reading with my kids about Lazarus being raised from the dead. He was in the grave for four days. And people thought, well, he's been dead for four days. He can't be raised anymore. Well, if you'd just been here earlier, maybe you could have been raised, Jesus. <laughs> I love when people tell Jesus what he can't do. I think it's funny, because you know what he does? He raises the dead. So we should, we should attempt big things, great things to make much of God, risking much, knowing that God is the one who holds both life and death. He's the one who has all authority. And second, I just want to encourage you, remember that the message isn't yours. It belongs to the king who loved you when you didn't deserve it. What should drive you to mission? What should drive you to share the good news? Because Jesus shared it with you when you didn't deserve it. Look, the times I've been most broken and most apt to share the gospel with those around me is whenever I realize how helpless I was apart from God's grace. And whenever I realize what he's done in me drives me to share that good news with others. So let's, let's share his abundant love. Let it drive you to share that with others. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, um, Lord, I thank you today. Um, Lord, I know this was a lot. These were big principles. And sometimes, Lord, maybe I think we've taken more than we should have. Um, but, Lord, I believe that your word speaks. And it's not dependent on my cleverness or my wit. I believe that you speak when you're ready to speak. So, Father, I pray that you would take this word and make it speak. Um, Father, I pray for my church family today. Um, I pray that we would have a desire a burning passion to share the hope that we have with the world around us, both here and around the globe. Uh, Father, I pray that your power would rest in us and that it would move through us, and I pray that we would see your purpose come to fulfillment here. Uh, Father, I guess what I'm praying is uh, what you taught your disciples to pray. I pray that your, we would see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, so, Lord, I pray that you would move in us, move through us. Father, help us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.